Well, this section of scripture that we're in is a very important one. And the reason that I believe this is a very important section of scripture is that as Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew, there's a phrase that kept ringing through our minds, and it's come up again and again and again in these last three or four weeks, where Jesus ends this sermon with this crowd around him, and he declares, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Sobering words at the end of this beautiful sermon that reminds us that the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but lived out. And the reason that these words are sobering is that it shows us that among people who claim to be Christ followers, there are two groups. There are folks who are truly transformed, truly children of God, truly followers of Jesus, truly entering into the kingdom of heaven. And there are folks among those who claim to be Christ followers who are kidding themselves. And Jesus says, someday some of you will stand before me, many of you will stand before me, And say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he says, I will tell them plainly, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. As the Sermon on the Mount closes, we think, okay, which group am I in? Am I on the narrow road that leads to life? Or am I on the broad road that leads to destruction? And then Jesus comes down off that mountain and he encounters a couple of men who call him for the first time in the book of Matthew, Lord, Lord. And the faith of these men is pleasing to Jesus. And we saw in this centurion, and we saw in this leper, that there was these two men who, even though by all standards in society, these would be the least likely candidates for the kingdom of heaven, something about these men was different. Their faith was real, that these two men would be men who would stand before him someday and not hear, depart from me, but hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus said about that centurion, I tell you the truth, no greater faith have I seen in all of Israel than in this centurion man. The leper who was an outcast, all of society, Jesus sees him and his faith makes him well and he's healed. And we see a glimpse of a couple of lives that truly were transformed. Two men whose faith was truly real, even though to all of society, people would say, I don't think they have it all together. Tonight we get a glimpse of the other side. These two men that we see in Matthew chapter 8, their faith is more of a mystery. We don't get to see whether or not Jesus brings them along with him or if they walk away sad like the rich young ruler. We don't get to see if these men jumped into the boat and became disciples or if these men walked away and never followed Jesus again. We don't get to see if their faith was real or if their faith was Faith was fake, but we get to see these two men who come to Jesus and their faith is more of a mystery. This is one of those passages where the Jesus that exists in our brain does not necessarily line up with the Jesus that we read in the Bible. Have you ever had that happen before? You have this view of God, and then you read the Bible, and you think, wait, what? God did that? My God couldn't have done that. And this is a passage where two men come to Jesus, and it seems like Jesus is dissuading them from following him. And our little sensors go off, and you think, wait, Jesus... Doesn't he want disciples? Doesn't he want followers? Doesn't he want men and women and children and everyone in the world to follow him? Why would he push back? 
A man comes and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, okay, um, before you do, though, I'm homeless. <laughs> do you really want to walk with me? Another man comes and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first I need to bury my dad. Jesus says, leave your dead or dying dad and come with me now. Let the dead bury their own dead. What would you do if Jesus said that to you? Here's your dad's funeral. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, come with me. You're like, well, I'm in the middle of my dad's funeral. He's like, well, leave. Come with me. I don't know. <laughs> he said, Jesus, I want to follow you everywhere. He's like, well, just so you know, if you follow me, you're going to be homeless. Would you follow him? I don't know what I would do. We don't know what these men did. But we see that when these two men come to Jesus and they seem like they are so excited to follow after him, he just like, puts a pail of ice water on their heads. It makes it hard to follow after him. Like I said, this is one of those passages where the Jesus in our brain does not match up with the Jesus in the Bible. The reason I know that is if you ever have a small group, like say you got in a small group tonight and said, you know what, let's discuss this passage, right? People who weren't here, someone else, right? A different small group. And you said, let's read Matthew 8 together. What's going on here? This is what your conversation would turn into. You would start to discuss the passage and then everyone would start pitching ideas of why these two men were phonies. Oh, I guess that one man, he said I'd follow you everywhere, but I don't think he really meant it. Oh, this guy was going to say, I'm gonna, I need to bury my dad first, but it was just a lame excuse, right? And we start making up all these things about, okay, Jesus really did want these guys to follow him, but obviously these guys were phonies and Jesus knew it. This is the argument that exists if you read Bible experts too. You look at commentaries and they say, okay, we need to look into the lives of these men because Jesus seems to not want them to follow him. And so what is happening here? Maybe this guy was just kind of going through the motions and, and just making up stuff. Maybe this guy, his father was still like 30 or something, right? And he's like, oh, Jesus, I'll follow you when my dad turns 80 and dies, right? Maybe these men are making lame excuses because the real Jesus would never dissuade someone from following him, right? The problem is if you look at the text and you don't just make up scenarios, these men look like people who genuinely want to follow Jesus. I mean, this first man comes to him as a teacher of the law, a man who was high in religious Jewish society. These are guys who would not normally want to associate with Jesus, and yet when Jesus is leaving the area and saying, it's time for us to depart, the disciples and I are going, this man seeks out Jesus on his own volition and says, Jesus, I know you're trying to escape this crowd and go to the other side of the lake, but I need to tell you, wherever you're going, I'm going to show up. All right, you're going to go over to the land of the Gerasenes? I'm going to book it around the lake on foot. I'm going to meet your boat there, Jesus. You can't get away from me, Jesus. I will follow you wherever you're going. You get in a boat, I'll meet you on the other side. You take off on foot, I'm going to get a jet ski or something, right? I'm, I'm going to get to you, Jesus. I will find you. An expert of the law, he seems desperate to sit under the teaching of Jesus. It says the teacher of the law said, teacher, I think you're the one who needs to teach me. And Jesus says, okay, well, just so you know, where I'm going, there's no bed. Where I'm going, there's no pillow, there's no roof. Where I'm going, I'm not stopping. I, and animals have places to sleep, not me. So if you want to follow me, that's what you're getting into. Just puts the brakes on it. 
When there's a place in Scripture where, where the God in our brains doesn't match up with the God in the Bible, it's very important that we slow down and ask ourselves, why? If you're reading the Old Testament, and God's doing some stuff, you're like, oh, my God would not do those types of things. Slow down and ask yourself, what's going on? God's trying to teach you something. Because there's a big chance in that moment that your view of God is wrong and the Bible is right, right? We say, well, I'm a, maybe uh, Jesus didn't really. He did these things, right? We believe in the God of the Bible. And so when the God of the Bible does something different than the God of the brain, brain wrong, Bible right. So whenever you feel like that, you've got to slow down and ask, God, what is wrong in my view of you that makes me think that you would not do something like this? I sat through a lecture series one time uh, through a professor of Old Testament studies. And this woman had a big problem with the God of the Old Testament, even though she was a professor of Old Testament studies. And she would talk about God and how amazing he was, how he created the heaven and the earth, and how he freed his people from bondage. And then she would get to a part like in the Exodus where God kills all the firstborn children of all the Egyptians. And she would say, every time she'd say, oh, my Yahweh would never do something like this. They would move on in the Old Testament. We would get to like when they're entering the promised land and God tells them, kill every man, woman, and child among the Canaanites. Show them no mercy. And she said, my Yahweh would never say something like that. And over and over again, as we walked through the Old Testament, she kept saying every time God did something mean-seeming, she would say, my Yahweh would never do this. My Yahweh would never do that. My Yahweh. So she was like ripping pages out of the Bible and just saying, okay, the God that I worship would not do these things, so we need to reject these parts of the Bible. And to her, I think it seemed like a really admirable thing that she believed in this beautiful, wonderful God who would not do all the things that mean God in the Bible does. But as I'm listening to this woman, I'm thinking, do you know what you're saying? Like you're reading the Bible and you're saying, I worship a God who's not this one. Like I made up my own God and he doesn't do this stuff. And so she had this God in her brain and every time she'd encounter in the scriptures where her God wouldn't do that, she would say, okay, my God is not that God. My God is not the God of the Old Testament. My God is not the God of the Old Testament. My God is not the God of the Old Testament. She's an Old Testament professor, and she thought she loved the God of the Bible, but she was worshiping an idol. She was worshiping a God that she invented. And whenever the real God did something that her fake God would never do, she reminded herself, I worship an idol. I don't worship the real living God. Well, she didn't know she was saying that. This is what we do when we encounter something that Jesus does or that we see God doing throughout Scripture and we say, well, God could have never done that. My God would have never done that. What we're saying is I worship a different God than the God of the Bible, a God that I made up. The problem is that the God that you made up has no power. He's not real. You made him up. He has no power to save you. He has no power to change your life. He has no power over heaven and earth. He has no power to create or to redeem or restore. No power. He's... He's made up. Your God, there's no such thing, right? There's a God, a real one. And so if your Jesus would not have dissuaded someone from following him, you need to realize that you're saying, hey, I believe in a Jesus who's not this one. And there's a lot of cults who say, I believe in Jesus, but it's a different guy, right? So when we say, hey, what, what is, when we see a scripture that makes it look like God is doing something that our God would never do, 
It doesn't mean you're an idol worshiper and you're going to hell or something. What it means is that you've just encountered a place where your view of God is wrong. A.W. Tozer, I think it was A.W. Tozer, said the thing, what you think when you think about God is the most important thing that you think. We have this worldview. We have this view of God. We have this theology in our brains, our, our minds. We have this image of God. And we know that it's wrong in a lot of places, right? Because none of us have a perfect theology. No one does. And so when we encounter places in Scripture where we see God doing something that we think, wait, what? God is trying to reveal to you that you have an erroneous view of who he is that needs to change. And so the difference between a Christian and an idol worshiper is a, a Christian says, wow, what needs to change about my view of God? And a, an idol worshiper says, no, I'm going to reject that because I made up a God who's not like this. So what is Jesus doing here that is off-putting to us? What is Jesus doing that our brain Jesus wouldn't do, that the text Jesus is doing, dissuading these people from following him? I think what we want Jesus to be all about and what we think Jesus is all about is we think that Jesus is desperate to get a big crowd of people around him. We picture Jesus as this man who's walking the earth and just kind of hoping people will follow him. Like he's starting this new religion and we feel for him because we know it's a good one. And so he's going from town to town. He's doing miracles. He's like, please follow me, anybody. Come on, come on with me. Please follow me. Please follow me. I just want a crowd of people around me. I just want people to follow me. I want people to validate me, right? Whatever it is, we feel like Jesus desperately wants a crowd of folks around him at all costs. And so when he pushes people away, we think, what? Right, like if Jesus was a gospel salesman, he would be a bad one. Right? Like if you went to a used car lot and you said, hey, I'm looking at buying this car and the used car sales says, oh, the cars here are actually, most of them break down pretty quickly after you buy them. You'd be like, good advice, bad salesman, change jobs because what you're selling is breaking. Right? Jesus goes in and he tells people, listen, if you're going to follow me, you might die. If you're going to follow me, you might be homeless. You need to view me in such a way that even if your dad was dead right next to you, you'd be willing to leave the body on the side of the road and follow after me because I'm that valuable. And we think, Jesus, no one's going to follow you. Aren't you trying to build a crowd? No. Jesus absolutely does not care about building crowds of people. Right? How does this passage start? It starts, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And what was happening was all these people were coming because Jesus was healing, and he was healing, and he was healing. In Mark chapter 1, you read a little bit about this. Jesus goes up on a mountainside, he prays, and then he, the disciples find him, and they say, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. There's all these people down here who need healing, they need help. So don't you want to help these people? And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. And to the other cities so that I can preach there also, for that is why I was sent. And not only was Jesus not concerned about building a crowd, Jesus seemed not concerned primarily in healing these desperate people who were around him. Primarily, Jesus seemed concerned about getting into every city and bringing the gospel to all of Israel and then bringing it out to the rest of the world. Jesus doesn't seem to care about the crowd. He's trying to get away from the crowd. And so if Jesus doesn't want to build a crowd, what does he want to build? What is he trying to do? All right, if he's not trying to create a big church in a city, if he's not trying to create this empire where everyone thinks he's amazing, if he seems okay with pushing people away who don't truly get it, what is he trying to do? Jesus is not trying to build a crowd. Jesus is trying to develop 
devoted followers who are transformed by him. Transformed by him. And he's not concerned if people just follow him and walk along the road alongside of him. He's not even ultimately concerned if a person is blind and then they can see again. That's not his ultimate concern. Right? The leper who was healed, Jesus wasn't ultimately concerned about his leprosy. Ultimately, Jesus was concerned about this man's soul, about his ultimate reality. Jesus was trying to build a community of people who were transformed by him, not just fans of him. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And in our culture, we get that. When we use the word follow, it, it means nothing, right? Follow people on Instagram. You follow people on Twitter. How many followers do you have? And when we think of Jesus, we're like, oh, Jesus wanted so many followers. Jesus doesn't care about having 20,000 followers on Instagram, right? Jesus is making disciples. He's looking for men and women and kids who wanted to follow after him with everything in their lives. Who were so committed to him. Even if they were homeless, they didn't care. Even if they died, they didn't care. The disciples knew this. Right? That's why when Peter speaks up and he says, Jesus, if all others desert you, I'll never desert you. I would die for you, Jesus. The disciples knew that Jesus wanted their ultimate allegiance. They wanted him to, he wanted them to cling to him with everything they had. He was not concerned with people who just wanted to walk along the road with him. Whenever a crowd would gather, Jesus would just scare them away. People come all over the place. And Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And then everyone just leaves. <laughs> this is a hard teaching. And the disciples are sitting there in front of him. And Jesus says, aren't you going to leave too? And they say, where else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's the kind of follower Jesus was looking for. The kind of follower that if Jesus said, Listen, you're going to be homeless if you follow me. They would say, I don't care. You, you might die if you follow I don't care. You know, if you follow me, your whole family is going to hate you. I don't care. Listen, your dad's funeral is happening today? Sure, leave the funeral. Okay, I'll do whatever you say. I need you so bad. I'll do, what, I'll, I don't care. Only you have the words to eternal life. Now, this man who comes to Jesus and says, and Jesus says, follow me. He says, Lord, let me first bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There is a, a whole world full of dead people who are walking around. Not just your dad who's dead or dying. Everyone there at the funeral, they're dead too. All of us are dead. He says, I'm inviting you to join the company of the living. Leave those people. Let them do what dead people do. I want to make you alive. You know, we have this view of Jesus that if you were outside washing your car or something, right? It's like, a, I don't know, you're washing your car and your family's inside and you're washing your car and Jesus shows up and he says, hey, come and follow me. You're like, oh, really? Let me go get my family. No, come with me right now. Leave your family. Never tell them where you're going. You're like, oh, what kind of man would do that? Like, just that's messed up. Jesus, you can't do that, right? You're at a funeral, you're at your dad's funeral, and Jesus shows up and says, hey, come with me. You're like, well, I'm in the middle of this funeral. I'm about to go and do the eulogies. Like, come with me now or never. Like, what kind of God would do that? You know what's funny? If there was a movie, a romantic movie, and there was a guy who was about to give the eulogy at his dad's funeral, and the woman of his dreams walked by, 
And he decided to drop the eulogy and run out the door and go and pursue her because he knew she was his soulmate. We would all be like, oh. Like there's something so beautiful and so noble about there's something so important right in front of your dad's funeral, the eulogy, and yet you know this woman is so beautiful and valuable, you would leave everything to pursue her because someday you'll tell the story and say, I was about to get my dad's eulogy, but when I saw her walking by, I knew that I had to find her, and I pursued her, and I chased her down in an appropriate way, and, and I found her, and she fell in love with me, and I fell in love with her, and we were married, and I've never looked back, and everybody's like, that was the best movie ever, Right? The reason that we think that Jesus would be rude to ask us to do something like that is we don't think that he's beautiful. We don't think that he's valuable. We don't think that God is worth leaving a funeral for, even if it's our own. We can understand how someone would leave a funeral for a woman, leave their family for a million bucks if... Somebody said, hey, come with me and you'll be rich. Like, okay. Because that's what we worship. We worship money. We worship relationships, right? What we worship was the thing that we would feel it's appropriate to drop everything for. And when Jesus walks down the street, he says, let me tell you what the gospel is like. The gospel is like a pearl that is so valuable that if, if you found it and you needed to purchase it, you would sell everything you have just to have it. The gospel is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And so if you walked by a field, you saw the treasure, even if it cost you everything you had, you would sell it all and buy the field because the treasure in the field is so valuable, it's worth losing everything for. And when Jesus walked the earth, what we saw is that people who saw Jesus like that treasure were people who just dropped everything and followed after him. I'm going to fall off the stage. That's... When Jesus comes up to the first disciples, they're fishing, they're casting their nets in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and they walk away. They walk away from their legacy. They walk away from their family business. They leave their nets on the shore, the fish flopping around, their parents wondering, where's my son who's taking over my business that we built for generations? They just see Jesus. He says, drop everything, and they do. So if Jesus says, follow me, even if you'll be homeless, you're like, well, that's kind of rude. All that shows is that you don't see Jesus as valuable. Because if you did, you'd drop everything for him. And we could feel guilty about that. Like, oh, no. Who then can be saved? Nobody, right? Peter's bold claim, I will follow you even if everyone else betrays you. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to betray me too. That's the point. None of us would choose Jesus. All of us betray Jesus. All of us hold on to our nets and we don't leave the funeral and we don't want to follow him. And yet in his beautiful work, not only does his death provide a way for us to follow him, but his spirit opens our eyes to see him for who he truly is, the beauty and the value of Christ. And so some of you have had that experience where just kind of minding your own business. You think, oh, church is cool. I've been coming for years. And then one night, right, it's like, Jesus is so valuable. I need to give him everything. It's like something opened in you. And you left the company of the dead and you joined the company of the living. And Jesus says, that's the kind of person I'm looking to follow me. I'm looking to make dead people alive. I'm not <laughs> trying to build a cult following. Jesus is so much value 
that if he said, you're going to die if you follow me, people who truly get it would say, uh, is that the worst that could happen to me? <laughs> and die and they live forever? Like they get it. Do you get it? If you're realizing that Jesus is just kind of like a little token on your wall or a cool thing you do or a teaching that makes you happy or whatever, and he's not valuable to you, you got to get before him and, and confess that and ask him to give you a true picture in your heart, in your brain, everywhere of, of his value, of his glory, of his beauty, of his splendor. Ask him to show you how magnificent he is. Because Jesus is looking for people who, who love him, who would drop everything for him. We don't know how these guys' story ends. I'm kind of glad that we don't. Because if we knew how these stories ended, you know what we would do? We would read this passage and we would evaluate whether or not Jesus' ministry model was effective or not. Because we think effective ministry is one that gets a lot of people to show up and ineffective ministry is one that scares people away, right? By those metrics, Jesus was the worst pastor of all time. Like nobody left at the end. It's like John, his mom, and Peter's crying in the corner. That was it, right? But without knowing the results, you know what we see? We see that what Jesus was doing was using his own words and his own connection with humans as a dividing rod. Because what we know is that if that first man truly got it, like if he truly loved Jesus, if he truly would follow Jesus wherever he went, Jesus would have said, I'm going to be homeless. And he's like, well, then I guess I'm going to be homeless too. And if that man was a phony, right, if he was just along for the ride, if he was like a theological nerd, he just wanted to hear Jesus' teachings or whatever, he would have heard that and said, well, then forget it, I'm out. And this guy who was in the process of making the arrangements for his dad's funeral or trying to put his family estate together and in place so that he could follow Jesus, if that man's faith was genuine, and we don't know if it was or not, but if it was when Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, follow me, right, you proclaim the kingdom of God, he would have said, all right. And he would have left everything, he would have left his family, he would have become the black sheep, of his, black sheep of his family, and he would have followed Jesus. And if his faith was not real, he would have said, well, that teaching's too hard, I'm, I'm going to go back home again. The way that Matthew leaves it, I think on purpose, it shows us that the words of Jesus Christ are meant to show us in our own hearts if we're in or out. Right, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It makes us think, wait, am I doing the will of God? What's the will of God? And if we're concerned about that, it's evidence that, well, there's something real in you. And if you're like, ah, I'm probably good, right? That's a red flag. <laughs> and there's no way of knowing what you would do if you were in that scenario. But this is worth wrestling through. It's the most weighty thing in all of your existence. Do you truly know God or not? Jesus doesn't say, depart from me, you didn't do enough. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you know him? And you say, I'll follow you wherever you go. Do you mean it? Or is that something you say to make Jesus be like, wow, this guy's cool? <laughs> Wrestle with that. 
tonight as we receive communion, it's a time for us to, to remember and to cling to the fact that Christ is the only one who gives us life. And the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is for you. Eat this as often as you eat this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he passed it around and he said, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the fact that in his body is life, in his blood is life, and we need to cling to him for dear life. If you believe that during this next psalm, come forward and, and grab this bread and dip it in this cup and eat it. And remember and proclaim that life comes through Christ and Christ alone and you need him in you and with you, and you need to cling to him and hold on to him and follow him no matter what, even if you're homeless, even if you have to leave your fit, whatever it is, you're, you need him. If you believe that, come and receive communion during this next song. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move into communion.